opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hey, we are here. Um, I'm Debbie Armstrong, and uh, this is my fifth community call. But this is my first community call reading my notes on my Braille display. So I may stumble and mumble a little bit because I just got it back from repair. And I'm trying to train myself to not read my notes on my computer, but to actually use this for reading notes. So you guys are my practice space for that. This is also the first time I've been doing a community call where I have not been talking about computers. So that's another fun thing. Uh, So it's nice to talk about my hobby instead of my job. I'm going to be talking to you today about teaching your dog tricks in non-visual manner. And I'm going to speak for about a half hour, and then I'm going to ask for questions. Um, If you have dog issues you want to speak about, that's fine. But if you get kind of long-winded, I may move you along so we can make sure all the questions get answered. I'm going to start. Oh, and I also have allergies, so you'll hear me snuffing and snorting a bit, but that's just the way it is. Um, I'm going to start with my background. Um, I'm in my 60s. I have worked seven guide dogs. I'm working my seventh dog now. I'm also, along with my husband, we are the surrender coordinators for NorCal Golden Retriever Rescue. We've been doing that for about 10 years. I have fostered numerous dogs from shelters and rescue organizations. So not all my experiences with dogs have been with guides. And I am a passionate lover of dogs. And one of the things that I think that really makes a difference When you have a dog, whether it's a guide or a pet, or even if it's someone else's pet in your household, is how much time you spend with that dog. Now, if you have a child, you can read with it, you can play with it, but what the heck do you do with a dog? Well, one of the things that you can do with a dog is teach it tricks, and we're going to be talking about those tricks. We're going to be calling them behaviors, because everything an animal does is behaving. You know, you say to your little kid, why don't you behave? But in fact, the kid is just behaving. He's just not behaving the way you want. And in this talk, I'm only going to be discussing positive techniques for teaching behaviors to your dog. Now, there's a lot of debate about what techniques are most effective. And some people really believe that unless you correct a dog, you cannot teach it anything. And I'll leave that debate up to people who are training guide dogs. Since we are only training dogs to do fun things, we are not going to correct our dogs in this training. Also, if you don't correct a dog when you're teaching it, it can strengthen your bond with the dog. Now, I will say if your guide dog school has taught you to use corrections when you are working with your dog as a handler in guiding situations, that's a totally different experience because your safety is on the line. And in that situation, the authority there is your guide dog school and your guide dog trainer and not me. But when you're doing something with your dog that is generally designed to increase your bond, that's when you want to really focus on only being upbeat and positive. And that means even if the dog does something you don't like, your reaction to it should be to ignore the dog, not to correct the dog. And I can't stress that 
more strongly. You don't want to do anything aversive with a dog when you're trying to build a bond with it because building the bond makes the dog trust you, makes the dog want to come to you, makes the dog want to be with you. So that's why you're teaching tricks to increase that bond. But let's think for a minute, because when we talk about tricks or behaviors, the first thing people often say is, uh, well, I don't really want my dog to do something as much as once much as I want the dog to stop doing something. And we are here in my home office with a dog who needed to learn to stop to do something. And I did work very hard with him on it. His name is Dayton. And he has been sleeping because I told him to go to bed. So we're going to try to wake him up now. We have an audio demonstration prepared for you. Let me just get my Braille display away from the doggy slobber. And I will show you how we taught Dayton not to do something by actually asking him to do it. Hey, Dayton, wake up. Come here. Hi, sweetheart. He's a little red golden retriever. He's a career change guide dog. He was too hyper to be a guide dog, which is one reason he loves learning tricks because he loves having things happen. All right, Dayton, speak. Go speak. Speak louder. Come on, they got to hear you. Speak. 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 All right, that's good boy. Okay, you got to speak for the audience one more time. Speak. Speak. Good boy. All right, go back to bed. You got another trick in a while. Go to bed. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but he had a lot of trouble speaking. He was doing a lot of not speaking before he started speaking. Why was he doing that? Because I took this behavior we call don't bark, and I did something called reframing it. What I did is I taught Dayton that the only time he would get a treat is if he barked quietly. So he would be barking his little furry head off and I'd stand there with the treat and I'd say, whisper, whisper. And if he got a little bit quieter, I'd give him a treat. And I'd say, whisper, whisper. And if he got a little bit quieter, I gave him a treat. So pretty soon he learned that he only got rewarded for not barking. So one of the biggest secrets when you're teaching your dog not to do something is to think of reframing it so that instead of you're teaching him not to do something, you're teaching him to do something. So what I did is I reframed bark so that it became whisper. So uh, the other thing they tell you when they're, you're teaching dogs is teach your dog an incompatible behavior. Well, I learned this with my fourth guide, Boston. Boston loved to bark. Oh, my God, he loved to bark. He loved to bounce and bark. He loved to sit and bark. He loved to chase his ball and bark. He loved to roll on his back and bark. Nothing was incompatible with barking until I came up with the idea that if I taught him whisper, it was incompatible with barking. So all the barky dogs I've had ever since, we've taught them whisper. And that's really nice because whisper is a heck of a lot quieter than barking. And it also gives them the joy of, of vocalizing because doggies really do love to vocalize. We just wish they'd vocalize a little softer. Let me say a few more words here about reframing. Um, Let's suppose you have a dog you don't want on your sofa. Now, you can punish the dog every time you find it on the sofa. But if you reframe it and think of it as, no, it's not that I want to teach the dog to get off the sofa. What I'm really doing is I want to teach the dog to like being on the ground. And so the way you reframe that is you give the dog a reward for not being on the sofa. So you're transforming this idea of punishing the dog for doing something you dislike into rewarding the dog for doing something he likes. 
I have a few things to say about rewards, and then I'm going to move into the six different training techniques. I do want to ask our host a question first, though. Is there a problem? Because I hear a synthesizer. Does anybody need to be muted or anything? No, everything so far no? quite good. All right. All right. Well, then I'm going to move on. Now, let me say something about rewards before I get to the six techniques. A reward is anything, and I've learned this from dog trainers, is basically anything that the dog considers a reward. And every pet you have is going to see a different thing as a reward. We use treats a lot just because so many dogs find treats rewarding. But treats are not the only thing you can use. This little guy here, Dayton, he loves tennis balls. Oh, my gosh. You pull out a tennis ball, he is bouncing and wiggling all over. So... um. I was giving him rewards for fetching and he kept snapping at my fingers and it hurt. And suddenly I realized, you know, he doesn't really want the treat. He's snapping at my hand because he wants to get through the treat so he can get the ball. So when I've been working with him on fetch, I've just stopped giving him food for it because the ball is what he really wants. And my fingers have thanked me because he was really nipping at them hard, but I had misunderstood and thought he was nipping at them because he wanted the treat so bad. No, he wanted the ball so bad. He wanted to hurry up, mom, and feed me all enough already because I want this ball. So, like I said, every dog finds certain things rewarding. I've had guide dogs that love to be snuggled and petted, and I've had dogs that are a little bit more aloof. I've had foster dogs who have not had enough rewards in their life. There are two kinds of rewards, primary and secondary. A primary reinforcer is something that a dog is born with. It may be the desire to chase the ball. It may be food. It may be snuggling in your lap. It may be jumping. And yes, jumping can be very rewarding for a dog too. But that's a primary reinforcer, something the dog already finds rewarding. Then there is this concept of the secondary reinforcer. And that is something that you have taught the dog to like. It may be something just as simple as bringing you a pair of slippers and he gets snuggled and petted for that. It may be that he sees his leash and you're going to take him for a walk. And so you've taught him that a walk is a secondary reinforcer. You can you can get very creative about it, but a secondary reinforcer happens if a dog has done an activity often enough and found it pleasurable enough that he sort of integrates it to, into his own system of finding this rewarding. And the skillful use of secondary reinforcers is what separates the good trainer from, say, the novice trainer. And I think I'm still very much of a novice. But I keep working on teaching my dogs to actually like what I'm showing them how to do so I don't have to constantly give them food. All right. I have here six techniques for training a dog. And... The nice thing about having so many different techniques is that you can mix and match. And for each one, I'm going to give an example. I'll try to give a visual example and a non-visual example. The reason I want to give a visual example is because you're going to read about them in books and stuff. And a non-visual example is something I've done with the dog. Let's start with instinct. Um, most animals have instincts, as do we. Um, but one of the most powerful instincts for a dog, unlike a chimpanzee where mimicry is common, dogs don't mimic. So you can't get a dog to do something because it's copying, copying you. But dogs do love to follow other dogs. So when I got 
my first guide dog, for example, we didn't do escalators in those days. This is like the 1980s. And the only school that did escalators was the CNI. And so I had a girlfriend who had been trained by the CNI to do escalators. So I wanted to teach my guide dog to do escalators, but I didn't want to get in trouble with guide dogs. So I had her show me all the proper techniques, you know, how to get on the escalator, not let the dog's paws get caught and all that. But my dog was still sort of phobic of the escalators because she hadn't been, uh, you know, trained to do it at the school by a professional. So what I started doing is traveling with my girlfriend who was from the CNI and her dog would jump on the escalator all enthusiastic. And then my dog saw her dog do it and wanted to follow. Let me give you another example of, um, it's sometimes called social facilitation as well as instinct. But this method of training relies on a natural ability for the dog to want to do something. For example, a dog that likes to fetch will just naturally do that and then you can um, work on it to improve it a little bit. But a better example for me I have all these, I've had all these foster dogs and I often get a foster dog who has not been housebroken. Well, you know, for a blind person, having an unhousebroken dog can be a real drag. So, but I do have guide dogs here at home. I have a working guide and a retired guide usually. So what I do with my foster dog is the foster dog always goes out and goes to the bathroom with all the other dogs. And so, so if it sees all these other dogs going out at regular intervals and going to the bathroom, it usually goes with them and does its business at the same same time. And that's really helped because that social facilitation means that that dog learns housebreaking pretty much all on its own. The second technique that's most common for training is called molding. Um, sometimes it's called compulsion. It's when you press down on a dog's rear end and pull up on its collar to make it sit. It's when you grab your guide dog and you shove it under the seat to get it down under the seat with you. Um, because you're on the train and your dog is spread out in the aisle and it's in everybody's way and they're all tripping on it. It's when you have a foster dog like I've had and you're trying to get it up on a table and you have to maneuver it up onto the table because it refuses to jump because say you want to brush it or something. Compulsion or molding is the uh, technique that's probably been used the longest by dog trainers. It has some advantages. It's very easy for beginners to learn. It has a huge number of disadvantages. The biggest disadvantage to molding is that you are manipulating the dog. The dog's not thinking for itself. You are giving the dog little shoves in the direction you want it to go. You are forcing the dog to do something. And some dogs can find it very aversive. You've probably worked with a dog and tried to make it sit and it was stubborn and it didn't want to sit or down. Down is really my favorite one because you'll You'll sit down, down, the dog won't down, you'll push on it, down, down, and dog will just refuse to do that. And that is, I, there's a technical word for it, which I can't find in my notes now, but that sort of stubborn response to your uh, desire to mold it is... Uh, is natural obstinance, and it's a typical reaction. But you can use actually use that to your advantage. For example, I looked up on the internet how to train a dog to be a furry grab bar because I had hurt my knee and it was very difficult for me to get up off the ground. And I had a retired guide who was a big, strong furry guy, and he would have been perfect. He was perfect. So I had never used molding or compulsion with him, so I expected him to be obstinate. 
So I would sit in front of him and I would press, and this is Maxwell, who is still alive, by the way, but a little too old to be a furry grab bar now. And I would push down on Maxwell's shoulders and I would say, brace. And of course, Maxwell, he would, he would resist and he would resist against my hand. And then as soon as I could feel him stiffening up and resisting, I'd give him a treat. So pretty soon, and this is a proper technique for teaching um, this just uh, to a service dog. Pretty soon, if I pressed on his shoulders and said brace, he would stiffen up, you know, delightedly because he knew he was going to get a reward. So after a while, like if I was on the floor in front of my washing machine and I needed to get back up on my feet and didn't want to put weight on my bad knee, I could put my weight on, on Maxwell and say brace and just literally use him to get to my feet. And that was very, very convenient. Um, I have a note here that says, I need to remind you that if a technique like molding is not working, you need to switch to another method. But I haven't got to the other methods yet. So like I said, I'm still learning how to read these notes on my Braille display. Um, let me talk about another compulsion method that was used at the guide dog schools. As you know, guide dogs are taught um, to back up very rapidly if a car is approaching the blind pedestrian. Well, how do you think they teach dogs to back up? Well, what they do is they put the dog in a tube and the only direction the dog can go is backward or forward. And they teach the dog to back up. I'm sure they give them rewards or something for it, but, but the tube actually is molding the dog, forcing the dog to walk backwards in order to move at all. Um, another technique that's often used, and you'll see this on the Lucky Dog program on television all the time, is when he is teaching a dog to stand or brace or do anything that involves not lying down, he takes a brick and puts it between the dog's legs and he tethers the dog so the dog is unable to lay down. And that's another um, molding technique. Uh, the other thing about molding that I've seen on many web blogs is the idea that you can use molding to change a dog's emotional response. For example, if your dog is growling and lunging at the end of the leash, sometimes if you just move your hand across him very calmly, kind of smooth his hackles, speak with him softly, you, as you emulate that calm emotional center, he will begin to calm his emotional behavior too. All right. I am going to mute for a second, check our time, and then I'll move on to our third technique. Again, we'll be doing questions at the half hour. So just start thinking about what questions you want to ask. Okay, I got lots of time. All right, our third technique is called luring. And luring is where you use food, but you get the dog to follow the food to get the desired behavior. So one of my dogs, and I allow my doggies on the bed. So one of my guide dogs just left to plop in the middle of the bed. And uh, it's very hard to sleep when your dog is plopped in the middle of the bed. I like him at the foot of the bed. So I used luring to teach him to go to the foot of the bed. I would hold a treat in my fist. And of course, his little sniffer sniffer would follow my hand. I'd move it to the end of the bed. Then I'd raise it up in the air. He'd look up at the treat. Then I'd lower the hand to the bed spread. He would follow that hand down. I would say down in my softest voice. He would lay down and I would open my hand and I would give him the treat. 
After a while, all I had to do was point to the foot of the bed and he would scurry over there and lay down. So then I didn't have him plopped in the middle of the bed at 4 a.m. when I'm trying to get rolling over. And, you know, it's really hard, especially if you have a husband and two other golden retrievers who all want to be in bed with you. Now, the problem with the luring technique is that you need to fade the lure eventually unless you want to have a fat dog. So you need to teach the dog that the behavior itself is a secondary reinforcer. Um, I had a problem with one of my guide dogs that on the bus, he always wanted to sprawl it on the floor in front of me. And I wanted him to sit right in between my legs. So what I began to do is I would snap my hand in front of me. And when I snapped and I would tell him to sit, I would give him a treat. But pretty soon I kept working on it, holding a treat in my hand so that he watched it. And then when he was sitting properly between my legs, he would get the treat. And I would gradually increase the treat giving only when he sat exactly the way I wanted, right in between my legs with his tail under the seat, his feet tucked in, nothing fuzzy sprawling in the aisle. And so you can use luring for all kinds of things. Uh, the guide dog schools often teach us to use luring to teach the dog, for example, to find a chair. I have used luring a great deal to teach the dog to find elevator buttons. What I do is I put my hand on the elevator button, and if he touches my hand, he first gets a treat. But after a few weeks, I point to the elevator button, and he only gets the treat if he touches the elevator button, because clearly I don't want to be feeding him all the time. And I would get to the point where I'd guide dogs who would be just guiding me along happily, and they'd see an elevator button and drag me over there, which was great, because I, I work in a campus with a lot of elevators. So it, I discovered more elevators that I didn't even know existed after that. That was kind of handy. Um, when you are doing, oh, I was going to say, I was going to tell you about a visual technique too, because all the dog training books have this watch me thing. So they want you to lure the dog to look at your face. And what you'll do is you'll take a treat, you'll move it toward your face. And when the dog's eyes are looking at your face, you'll give the dog a treat. And you'll say, watch me, watch me. And this technique is supposed to help with dogs that are reactive or dogs that are distracted. So when they get distracted, you say, watch me, and the dog is looking at you. Now, how the heck are we going to do that as blind people? Well, it's actually easier than you think. The technique I read about and that I've been using with my, my foster dogs, too, is called doggy zen. And doggy zen works like this. You take two hands and you put a treat in one and you don't put a treat in the other you make fists, you show the dog the two fists. The dog sniffs at the hand with the treat. You just stand there, no treat. You keep your fist tightly fisted. You keep waiting. The dog sniffs at your hand with the treat. You just keep waiting and waiting. Pretty soon the dog sniffs at the hand without the treat. Then you open your hand with the treat and give it to him. And what you're teaching your dog to do is pay attention to you, not the food. And I do doggies in with my doggies all the time. And so they learn that my hand and not the food is a target. And with my um, dogs that have been with me for a long time, I can just move my hand around and the dog will follow it because he knows that by following it, he is going to eventually get a treat. And that goes into our next fourth training technique, which is called targeting. Um, sighted people use something called a target stick, which is a long stick with something brightly colored on the end. And they teach the dog to touch that. And targeting 
is used to teach dogs all kinds of things, um, agility, uh, musical freestyle, which is dog dancing. Um, they can move their dog to any position with the target by pointing the target where they want the dog to go. Now, for us, that's a little more difficult, but you can use your hand. And what's wonderful about targeting is once the dog learns to follow your hand, instead of following a treat, because he knows he's going to get a treat eventually for doing something, you can teach him to move in almost any position you want. Uh, for example, um, I ride these uh, paratransit vehicles where we don't have a lot of room in the back seat, and I've got to get the dog on the floor. Now, I could use molding and compulsion and give the dog little shoves to get him in that position. But what I do with my um, current guide dog is I got my husband's car in the driveway, and I pulled the seat forward as if there was a really tall guy in the front seat. There's not, but just to make it really hard for the dog. Then I got in the back seat and using my hand as a target, I trained my dog to go by himself, lay down in that little tiny space and curl up behind the seat where the imaginary tall man was sitting. We worked on it many, many times and we always made it fun. He got rewards as he, as he got better and better at going by himself without me even touching him. He would get more and more rewards for getting down there behind the seat and curling up really like a small little fuzzy package. This is a big old golden retriever we're talking about. But because I didn't do compulsion, because I never forced or shoved on him, he got to the point where he was wagging. He would do it automatically. It was fun. And that was all targeting um, because he had learned to follow my hand, the same elevator button hand. So you can teach a dog to self-squish in a small spot. And what's really nice about luring and targeting and these techniques is you're asking the dog to think for himself. You're asking the dog to move himself rather than you moving him. Okay, I'm down to two more techniques. Uh, technique number five is called capturing. And that means you wait for a behavior to occur and then you reward it. And that's actually what I did with little Dayton here, who's going to have another performance pretty soon because he's getting kind of bored. With Dayton, I did capturing, or we all did capturing, actually. Every time we heard a loud, loud bark, we would say, whisper, whisper. And then if we happened to hear a slightly softer bark, we'd give him a treat. Um, I had a foster dog I got named um, Jupiter, <laughs> but we named him Jumpiter because that's all he did. Uh, he had been in the backyard his whole life on a chain. Can you imagine? And he had very little attention. So if you paid any attention to him at all, he would jump, he would lunge, he would bite. Now, I'm not talking about mean bite. I'm talking about play bite. This is a 80-pound golden retriever that had never been taught how to properly play. So as soon as you touched him, as, him at all, his mouth would come out and he'd grab at your arm. He was just so happy you were paying attention to him, so happy he wanted to play, but he didn't realize he couldn't use your arm as a tug toy. So you can imagine how painful that was getting. So I thought I would try some capturing with Jupiter because he was like driving me crazy. So I tied him up to a post in my front yard and I stood there and I would approach him and immediately launch himself at me with his fangs out. Ow, just, just thinking about it makes me hurt. And so I'd back up. And then I'd approach him again and he'd launch himself at me. Well, pretty soon he got all tired of this launching bit. And he kind of stood still for a minute and I got close to him and I touched him and he didn't bite. And as soon as he did that, I gave him a treat. 
And I backed up and I did the same thing over and over again. So pretty soon Jupiter realized, oh, if I launch myself at her and I try to bite her, even if I'm only trying to play bite, she won't pet me. She won't pay attention to me. So then after he'd gotten a little bit better about that, we started tying him under my husband's desk. And so every time he was down there under my husband's desk and he was quiet, my husband would bend down there and snuggle him and pet him and give him a lot of attention because that's basically what he wanted. He wanted to be paid attention to. And so it only took Jupiter, well, four or five days to learn to be a quiet dog. It, like people were amazed. Like he was all quiet and calm down. Like, what do we do to him? Did we like give him drugs or something? But no, all we did was make sure that we captured that small moment of calm behavior and rewarded it. Um, okay, so let's. I also had a, a couple of foster dogs who had never learned down or sit. And one technique I like to do with them, and I don't need to do this with a guide dog, but this works really well with a foster dog, is you go into a small space like a bathroom with this dog, usually a wild dog, a wild friendly dog. And you sit down on the floor of your book or whatever you're going to keep you entertained. And the dog is bouncing around like a crazy thing. Well, eventually gets tired of bouncing around and he lays down automatically. As soon as he get, lies down, you give him a reward. If it's a tennis ball or a treat or petting, whatever the dog wants, give him a reward. So by capturing that down, you're rewarding down without working, without pushing on him, without using compulsion. Okay, let's see. Now I've lost my place in my selling notes. And I have a sixth technique I want to talk to, talk to you about. Ah, another way of capturing my first guide dog, Nadia, she was a gorgeous German shepherd, very, very smart. And I wanted her to be able to find stairs. Oh, it's going to be time for questions soon. I better boogie through this. So I wanted her to find stairs. And what I did to teach her stairs was I began to whistle whenever we started to go downstairs. And so after a while, if I started to whistle, she would look around for stairs. And so that was just, you know, I praised her for finding the stairs, even if I, I was the one who found them. So pretty soon when I started whistling, she would look for stairs. Uh, the last technique I want to talk about is shaping, but I did promise we'd answer questions at the half hour. So I'm going to take the questions. And then if I have time, I will certainly talk about shaping. So I'm ready for questions now. I raise hands. How do you want to do? Uh, yeah, raise hands, please. Sneaking some water in here. Linda Yak. Linda Yak has your hand up. Go ahead, Linda. Hi. I have um just a question you might be able to help with. <clears throat> My son has a an um Australian slash Anatolian shepherd. And he's about six and a half months old and he's a galoose of a puppy. And I'm scared of him because he likes to jump. What would you suggest that I might do so that when I go out in the yard, I might be safer with him? Are you afraid of him knocking you over? What what part of jumping? Yeah, oh, I'm scared he'll knock me over. He's a oh. he, he's he's going to wind up somewhere around ninety pounds, I think, because he's taken after the Anatolian side of uh, his. Right, so you're not afraid he'll hurt he'll uh, he'll uh, bite you or no? He he, he he wants to play bite, and him he and I have gotten that one figured out by my tapping his mouth and telling him no bite. Yeah, and okay. you know. So, but you just don't like being knocked over. I just would prefer not to fall and break a hip because of a of a, a wonderful galoot of a puppy. <laughs> oh, I know. I have a bad knee too, so I get it. I don't like being launched at. Um, does he jump when your son has him on a leash with you? Part of the issue, I think, with this poor dog is he lives outside, and so he hasn't had 
the opportunity for the one-on-one training that my son would give him if he were a house dog. Mm. Um, His purpose here is to protect the animals. And so, you know, my son hasn't spent as much time training with him as he would if he was in the house. But okay, so but go ahead and give me your ideas and then I'll talk to McLean about them. Yeah, no, I'm thinking about it. Um, Would you be able to interact with him sitting down and feel safe? Yes. So I am thinking that if you put in a little bit of time finding a way to interact with him, sitting down in a chair, petting him softly, doing whatever you can with him to get him settled with you so that he learns with dogs, a lot of what you do with dogs is sort of a pattern. I mean, dogs develop patterns with you and, and they repeat those patterns. Like Dayton here is laying on his bed next to me because that's kind of a pattern in my office. We, we lay on our bed until it's time to do things. So I'm I'm thinking that he needs to have that pattern of, of when he sees you, he's automatically going to settle and be calm anyway. That's the first thing you need to do is have enough time interacting with him, with him settled. I don't know if you could brush him or just pet him or something like that, but you, in that energy, if you don't want that energy, you know, you're not going to be doing things like throwing balls for him or running around the yard. That's, that's not what you're going to do with him. He needs to see you as, as, my pattern with this person is to be settled. And I don't know if he can do that. I mean, maybe your son has to rev him up and tire him out first. And then when he's all hot and tired and panting, you come out and pet him while he's laying down. But he needs to start developing that pattern with you so he isn't launching himself at you. And then you need to do some interacting where he's tied up so you can get away so that he's uh, he's tied up and you approach and pet and then if he starts to get revved up you move away so he stops getting the reward of you petting or talking to him if he's if he's getting wild i mean they do this with the baby guide dog puppies they tether them so they they um tie them on a leash at the handler's feet and the dogs have to learn to be still and quiet near the person even though this is a baby puppy it wants to bounce all over and nibble on you and that's how they teach them okay well, you know, if he was little, I'd have a little different luck with him, but he's... Oh, yeah, I know. I mean, it's he, hard he, with a big dog. He comes over here and jumps on my screen door. And uh, I used a little negative behavior on the screen door because I opened the screen door really hard one day. And so now he doesn't like my screen door. So, And I, I don't like to do that. I understand. But, you know, when he comes over and barks at my door now and doesn't jump on it, I do open the door and let him come in. So, yeah. He's learned that, you know, if he wants to come and play with my little dog, why he has to be nice at the door. So, Well, it'd be good if your son could wear him out playing with him, running him around, throwing toys for him. If, if, if he, before he interacts with you, it helps if he's worn out because I don't know if you've ever seen, and this is, you're going to laugh at this because this is a cat program, but My Cat from Hell, which is one of our favorite programs, they spend a lot of time explaining that one of the reasons some of these cats are so, quote, violent, quote, is that they've got all this energy they don't know what to do with. And that's mm-hmm. a, really a problem with dogs too. They have energy and if you're not doing things with that energy and you don't have a way to get it out, you, just telling them to be calm is gonna isn't gonna work. They have to, they have to, you know, play. They have to get rid of all the energy. It's another reason we have more than one dog. Right. Um, I'm ready for another question though, but Linda, I, I definitely care about you. I can feel it's happened to me before too. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, next question. I don't have another one, I don't think. All right. Well, I'm gonna talk a little bit about shaping. 
Um, when sighted trainers who are very good at this are doing shaping, they're using a clicker, they're, they may be using treats, but mostly what they're doing is they are using successive approximation to teach a trick to a dog. So let's talk about how they might teach fetch. What they would do is they would have the thing, the fetch object, and whenever the dog even approached that object, they would click the clicker and give the dog a treat. Pretty soon, the dog would have to touch that object with his nose, and then they would click the dog and to give it a treat. Pretty soon, the dog would have to start mouthing it, and they would click and treat. Pretty soon, the dog would have to start like picking it up, and then the dog would get the treat. Pretty soon, the dog would have to be picking it up and carrying it a few feet, and then it would get a trick, a treat. And pretty soon, the dog would have to be picking it up, carrying it, and then dropping it somewhere near the trainer. Then the dog would get a treat. So eventually, the dog would be trained to put that treat right in the trainer's hand. And that is shaping. Um, the guide dog schools teach us shaping by having us say you want to go to a coffee shop. So what they do is they have you get near the coffee shop and then say inside, have the dog guide you to the door and you give it a treat. Then they have you get a little bit farther for the coffee shop and say, where's the door? Where's the door? And then the dog takes you closer and you give it a treat. So you're doing successive approximation there. But let's suppose you want to teach a trick. And I'm going to talk about the different ways that I taught my dogs fetch using shaping. Each of my dogs was different. Um, one of my dogs loved to pick up the toy and carry it around, but he would just sort of randomly drop it places. And then of course I couldn't find it, so I couldn't really reward him for it. So what I did is I tied a string on the toy and I put a clicker on my other hand on one of those springy cords. And whenever I felt him interacting with the toy at all on the other end of the string, I would give him a treat, I'd click and treat. Um, then eventually when I heard him only dropping it, you know, pick, he could pick it up all day and I would ignore him. But if he dropped it, I would give him a treat. Uh, then what I did is I got a big blanket and I spread it out. And if he dropped it on the floor, I ignored him. But if he dropped it on the blanket, I gave him a treat. Then I took the string off because he was getting pretty good at dropping on the blanket. And I just left the blanket there. Now, the purpose of the blanket was so that I wouldn't have to search for the toy. If he dropped it on the blanket, I could roll up the blanket and find the toy again. So then when he dropped it on the blanket, I would give him a treat. Well, then I kept folding up the blanket and making it smaller and smaller. And he was dropping it on the blanket. You know, and this is over a period of weeks. So each week, maybe the blanket got just a little smaller. So I was making the the trick harder and harder and harder. Then eventually the blanket was this little tiny thing and I started putting my hand on top of it and he would drop the treat into my hand because we basically was covering the blanket, right? And then I made the blanket go away and only my hand was there and he was dropping it in my hand. Then I started putting my hand up in the air and if he missed my hand and the toy fell on the ground, I would say, oh, oh, and I put the treats away. So he'd have to find my hand and make sure the toy actually landed in my hand and then he would get his treat. And now my retired guide, Max, is so good at this that I can put my hand behind my back and he will struggle to get that treat settled in my hand properly because he knows that's the only way he's going to get his 
his treat. And he often doesn't even get a treat. I give him a treat every three or four times now because I pet and praise him for some of these fetches and not even, I've turned petting and praising into a secondary reinforcer so that he's not always eating, eating, eating. So that's how I taught him fetch. And I had another dog I had to shape fetch totally differently because she liked to bring me the toy all right, but then she hung on to it. She didn't want to let go of it. So I would tug with it a little bit and then I would ignore her and then she'd eventually drop it and I'd give her a reward. And then pretty soon I did the whole blanket and hand bit again and she learned that, oh, I can hold on to it all day, but you only tug for a little bit and then I have to let go of it so you can throw it again. So again, you have to sort of adjust your technique for the dog you are working with. And that is how I taught fetch and shaping is my last uh, of the six techniques, but I have some more things I can talk about. However, I want to give a chance for more questions if there are any. We got Danielle with her hand up. Go ahead. Hi, Debbie. De- Deborah, this is an excellent seminar. I'm actually just getting off a train, but I've been traveling with you and it's it's been very informative. I really appreciate it. So my question is probably the typical one when it comes to shaping, and that is how do you ensure that the behavior is eventually fulfilled to completion and not stopped short of the goal because you reward, you begin rewarding before it's actually accomplished. So how do you keep the dog going forward over the course of time to where the behavior is completed? Um, Yeah, the concept of shaping is very different from other training techniques. In other training techniques, you're looking for precise behavior. With shaping, you are looking for approximate behavior. So successful behavior might be dropping the toy in the middle of a a blanket that's four feet square. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's actually successful. For my working guide now, that is successful behavior because he hasn't learned to hand me the toy. But for my retired guide who knows how to hand me the toy, successful behavior is finding my hand whether it's between my legs or behind my back and targeting that hand and placing the toy right in that hand. So what happens is you meet each dog where they are. No, no. What I'm saying is I understand that, but how, how do you get it from, okay, I did it to, you know, upping it. You you know what I'm saying? Okay. I've carried out the behavior successfully. What more is there to do? You understand? Like I recognize that approximation is successful, but there's still a goal. And how do you eventually move the dog beyond that today's successful behavior to what we hope to be the successful behavior two months from now? And it's just a step towards that. Yes, if I'm understanding you, you, you have to up your criteria. You have to change it to something harder, but very slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I could talk to you a little bit about distance because I have this here in my notes too, because this was my next topic and it kind of relates to your questions. Distance, okay. duration, and distraction. So um, I wanted to pass the CGC with my current working guide. The CGC is the canine good system test. And yes. for that, you have to do like a two minute stay off leash. So when you're doing a stay, the three criteria you want to do are distance, duration, and distraction. So, um, and you want to work on them separately. So the first thing I did was distance. So I would put him on a stay in my kitchen and I walk away from him first with a long leash, then with no leash. And I didn't worry about time. I'd walk away, I'd come back, I'd reward him. No, that was just distance. I was working on distance, not duration. 
Then when I began to work on duration, I reduced my distance. I was only a foot away, but I made him stay for a longer and longer, longer time. And then finally I had the duration down. Then I worked on distraction, which means like going to the neighborhood dog park and standing outside the fence and making sure he stayed on his leash. And when I worked on distraction, I tried to avoid distance and duration. I stayed close to him. I didn't make him stay very long. Uh After I worked on each of them, I started working on them together. So eventually I could do distance, duration, and distraction all together. But each time, you know, we're working on an itty-bitty piece of this with each training session. You're you're always making sure that you only change one small piece of your criteria each time. Okay. I'll just say this quickly because I don't I don't want to take up from other people. But I guess with the example you're giving now, I understand that because that's more keeping him from doing something and or and uh, it's more keeping him from doing something or keeping him where he is as opposed to learning to do something new. So I, I do understand how that applies in that case. But I guess when you're teaching them actually a new thing, such as placing a, tri- a ball in your hand um, when the, to retrieve it, it, just I guess when you get them to bring pick it up and then drop it somewhere near, how do you keep them moving forward so that they say, OK, I did it because I got the treat. OK, yeah, you did. But how do we then move them? Uh, beyond that? You start with hope. Holding the treats and they start experimenting. That's what makes shaping so powerful because because the dog starts trying different things to see what will elicit a treat. All right. (laughs) That was the part I sort of didn't talk about is is uh, what happened is as my dog got good at something, then he stopped getting a reward for it. So he tried something different. Like maybe he tried dropping the the toy farther away and oh well that didn't work maybe i'll try dropping it closer uh, you know what i think uh, how many hands have we got i don't know i know you got one more at least all right we'll take that one more hand and then i will finish answering her question because i'm going to do another demonstration with this dog okay. here. all right thank you you're welcome okay veteran eugene this is uh terry i don't know how to raise my hand on the phone that's um, okay but i just wanted to be in the queue <laughs> Well, can you, can you hear me, Roger? Yeah, go ahead. I, I got a question. It's probably a behavior, not a, a trick. How do you teach a little puppy to go on pads? Um, I have chain link fence, and I want to get another Yorkie. My last one, I had to put it down because the kidneys were going. Uh, and the only reason I want to keep the Yorkie inside is she, uh, they're so small, they get their heads stuck in the chain link fence. So how do you teach a little puppy to continually go on on the pads? Because that's the way the other one I had used to do. She'd she'd go on the pads, and I had her trained where she would uh, once she'd go on the pads, she'd come in and bark and let me know that she went on the pads, and I'd go change them. Um, I'm not a small dog expert. I have big dogs, but <laughs> I think it's basically the same thing as every other housebreaking technique. You need to take the dog to where it has to go, walk it around in a little circle, and if that's on the pad, and it helps to have some refuse from the previous time there, or you know, just leave a little bit of urine scent on that pad. Don't don't clean it too clean it enough that you feel like it's hygienic, but you want to leave some smell there. I know a lot of the pads come with uh, uh, scent already on them. 
That's great. Like I said, I'm not a little dog person. But the other thing I would say is remember with baby puppies, the times they have to go out are when they first wake up and they really have to go when they first wake up. And it's always good to have them go after they've eaten and after they've played. So, you know, it might be as simple as making sure that the puppy has no freedom and no opportunity to play until it's, you know, it's gone wee wee on its pad. And uh, <laughs> that may mean keeping it in a crate for a little longer or keeping it on leash next to you until you're, um, you know, know it's empty and don't, don't, don't make it hard for the puppy because they don't have the big bladder, you know, don't make it hard so that it has to wait when it first wakes up or it has, it's, it's playing games when it's bladder. I got a, I got a four by four tray that goes in the, bottom of the kennel and I got pads I put on top of it. The dog has access to the pads all the time. And of course this this one was like fifteen years old and she would she'd get up in the morning first thing she'd go get some drink and then she'd go on the pads and then she'd go eat her breakfast and you know she'd go on whenever she needed to. Yeah, yeah. Well just make sure you pay attention to to um the, the bladder needs of the baby puppy. This also goes for grown up chihuahuas. They're noticeably of mostly smaller bladders than other dogs. Oh, yeah. um, okay, we got Lisa Salinger. Uh sure, Lisa, go ahead and ask your question. Okay. Um first of all, also if there's time, um I've taught a small dog to use pads. So if we have time at the end I can address a few more possible things for the gentleman. But um I've had three guide dogs, so I'm no stranger to the land of Labrador. <laughs> but now, now I have a Pomeranian. Uh, so she's five pounds. She's little. And I really want to teach her to play with toys. And I want to do this because I want to be able to have a way to interact with her, engage her brain, and also teach her to take things in her mouth with a goal eventually, hopefully, of uh, having her retrieve an object or go to it if I drop it, because I also have some knee issues. Um, and she will, every once in a great while, play with a toy herself. But if I try to tempt her with a toy, um, if I've got the toy, she just walks away like, no, I'm really not interested. Um any did she ideas? grow up with no toys or did you get her as a rescue? I got her from a breeder and she did have toys. And the breeder said that she would play with and she would shake her toys. And it's possible that she's doing this and I'm not hearing it. Um, every once in a while, she will talk to herself. And so then, you know, I know it's pretty cute. <laughs> but um, I don't know that the the place where I got her, like if they ever interactively played with her now she will like if she's on my bed um i'll kind of like scamper at her with my fingers mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. she will like pounce on my hands and she will interact that way and she seems to enjoy it and solicit it but i really would like to introduce the toys into the mix uh, from having foster dogs, I can say one thing is that um, it's good to have a wide variety of toys because you don't know. Oh, you we do. Have a <laughs> uh, maybe she likes to chase little balls. Maybe uh, she just wants to chew on a bone and cuddle in your lap. So, you know, oh, she's a big one for cuddles. Uh huh. So, you know, maybe it's just what she wants to do. But if you can get her to cuddle and, and chew on something, you can kind of tug on the end of it a little bit and give her rewards for that. That's a lot, a of, lot of physical She's rewards. She's got a little bit of resource guarding. Mm -hmm. So, chewing on something in my lap, if she would do that, is good. Um, 
She's not a huge chewer. She eats a little bit of raw, and I'm not sure I want to cuddle with with her and raw chicken, but we'll, yeah, we'll, figure, yeah, something, no, we'll figure something out there. I, I understand that. We have to think about what, what I would just say that variety is really important. And then um, if you find something she likes, take it away from her for a few days and then give it back to her and then give her a lot of rewards for it because the absence of a toy makes um, it the makes heart the heart grow fonder or whatever. Yeah. 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 You got eight minutes. I got eight minutes. All right. I'm going to have Dayton whisper for you again, because I did want to answer that question. And I, I think having him whisper will help us here. Dayton, come here, whisper, whisper, whisper. Come on. We only have eight minutes. Good boy. <laughs> whisper, whisper, whisper. Good boy. All right. Well, he'd be whispering all day, but that, that, um, we were talking about raising criteria and with Dayton now I've gotten it. So his whisper is very soft. You saw that his whisper is really, really nice and quiet. It's not obnoxious. He gets the pleasure of vocalizing. Uh, he got treats for this because I needed him to do it now, not eight minutes later. But a lot of times I'll ask him to whisper without treats. And uh, then he kind of has this choice of whether he wants to do it right away or think about it. Um, Hi, this is Terry. Can I ask my question? Go ahead. Okay, so we have a, a Doberman female that we got from a rescue, about three and a half years old, and uh, we've had her now for three months. And one thing we'd like to teach her to do is how to play ball or to play toy with toys, even if it's you know any toy, throw it and get her to bring her bring it back to you, and 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 that, and she will do that a little bit, but she sort of loses interest really quick and she was crated for probably the first two years of her life just to give you of her she's very deprived so is this something that can be taught oh yeah but like you said you have to do you can't see you have to stop looking at your end goal and start thinking about what are your small goals so maybe your small goal first is that when you throw a ball she even goes and chases it and so, you know, if she's chasing it, you're clapping your hands. What a dog. What a good dog. And don't worry about her bringing it back yet, you know, or you have to you have to break it down into very, very small steps with dogs because dogs don't understand. We don't understand language so we can have goals and dreams and plans. Dogs are so in the <laughs> moment and so immediate. So if all you get today is for her to notice the ball and watch it with her eyes while it's bouncing, that may be. All you're going to get for the next week and a half, right? And then, you know, maybe she's chasing it and maybe. See, you have to just keep working on it. Uh, and you have to realize, too, that, um, you know, not all dogs are motivated by the same toys. I've had plenty of dogs that don't like tug. I mean, you could be putting a toy in their mouth and they'll sit there and they just don't want to do it. I mean, but the secret with that is just having a lot of different toys and finding the right one. So. Oh, we do. <laughs> yeah, I step on them all the time. <laughs> oh, I know. I I did my knee and tripping on a dog ball a couple nights ago. So I know. Other questions? Oh. Uh, okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. How much time have I got? About three minutes. And do we have any other questions? I heard somebody say I got a question. I don't know what it meant. Well, Roger, you were saying you were a cat person, so I just wanted to say briefly oh. that I have a girlfriend who's really into training her cats. And she has a little saucer of tuna, and she's got them fetching little balls of foil and doing all kinds of stuff. So this is not only a dog thing. Oh, that was David. <laughs> okay, go ahead with your question. I thought there was a question. So did I. 
Yeah, I was sure there was a question. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to close now. I think the one thing I'd like to remind you is just when you are working with dogs, remember they live in the moment. You can have all these great plans about how you want to teach your service dog to open the fridge and bring you a beer. But today, all you may be able to get the dog to do is look at the fridge. So remember, small steps, take it one little step at a time, and you can go very, very far. And that's all I have to say for today. Sounds good. Thank you very much. You're welcome.